Welcome to Develop Lex, Middle Tech's newest series sponsored by SVM Stone Commercial Real Estate and hosted by me, Weston Lockhart, and Evan Knowles. This series will focus on the ins and outs of real estate development and investing, where we'll have the opportunity to sit down with the developers of our cities, veterans of the industry, and key people that have over time made a massive impact on communities and neighborhoods. The purpose of this series is to be able to bring a knowledge base to our audience beyond that of what reading a book or watching a how-to video ever could, and educate from those who have done it by hearing their stories, both good and bad, along the way. We feel that historically the learnings of real estate have been inaccessible without being connected, and we would love to open the doors to the next generation of doers as well as shine a light on how visions of community have been brought to life. We hope you enjoy. SVN Stone Commercial Real Estate is a full-service commercial real estate firm located in Lexington, Kentucky, affiliated with the SVN International Network, which is comprised of over 1,600 advisors and staff in 200-plus offices across the globe. The SVN Stone team consists of experienced commercial real estate advisors in the heart of the bluegrass. SVN provides commercial real estate services to large corporations, middle market businesses, and individual entrepreneurial investors. Serving the greater Lexington area, SVN offers advisory services for sales, leasing, management, and development of commercial properties locally, regionally, and nationally. With a transaction volume of over $400 million, the advisors at SVN Stone Commercial Real Estate have a vast experience and deep understanding of all aspects of commercial real estate. Right, we're sitting here with Pat Madden. Pat, before we get into anything with Hamburg or any of the things you're currently doing, let's jump into your background. So talk about where you're from, your professional background up until this point, and we'll jump off from there. Sure. I, well, I was born, born and raised here in Lexington. Um, I, I did go away to high school, though. I went to a place called the Hill School in Pennsylvania. Then uh, I graduated from Hill. I went to Stanford University. Um, Actually, when I went to Stanford, I was actually kind of bored after being at prep school, believe it or not, because the prep school, every second of every day is accounted for, okay? You know, especially if you play sports, which I played three sports. And so then I went to college. I was kind of bored taking 15 hours. I had 15 hours taken up in my day versus my whole week versus every second plan. So I actually spent one year in Cambridge and England, too. Wow. Um, and, and then I ended up, I graduated from Stanford and then I went to uh, university of Kentucky law school and I graduated from there in 1989. And then I went and, and, uh, started practicing law with, then it was called Brown Todd and Hayburn. Uh, now it's called uh, Frost Brown Todd, uh, practiced there for about five years. I had a little stint, uh, where I traded options in Chicago and then the, de- actually the developments, what brought me back home. Uh, we, we did the first deal, um, the first, well, I know you, I don't know if you want to get into that yet, but that's what brought me back. And then basically that was about 1995. And since 1995, I've focused, you know, exclusively on real estate development. Um, I still have my law license. Uh, I still use it occasionally, but I don't take clients. my, My only client is my family and myself really. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't take new clients. Um, so 
I guess that's my background. Yeah. And so from traveling around and getting education in different parts of the world, you know, in Cambridge and then Stanford out in California and up in Pennsylvania, what was your biggest takeaway from, from your education uh, in those various places? You know, that's a great question. I haven't really thought about that. Uh, I thrived more. The English, I will say this, the, the, uh, the education system in England is com- completely different than the education system here. Here in in the U.S., you uh, you go to lectures. You you can't pass a class without going to a lecture. You know, without going to your classes here. Uh, whereas in England, the, um, the 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 system is based more on a lot more reading, which was a lot tougher on me because reading was my work, my toughest thing for me. Uh, but I got through it. I I passed by year. Uh, I, I actually, it's kind of a funny story. I, when I went to Cambridge. Uh, I didn't even tell Stanford. Stanford had no idea. I, I, this was back when you had to go to the library to do research, you know, find out stuff. And I wanted to go overseas, but I wanted to have a real experience. So uh, I found um, where Queens College, that's where I went, was at Cambridge, was accepting people to come for a junior year abroad if you wanted. So I applied directly to Queens and got in. But it was a little terrifying because it it was hard. It was really, That was probably my toughest uh, academic experience for other people like my son, who's a great reader, it, it'd be easier for him. But for me, that was harder because it really is more based on reading yourself, you know, versus the classroom. You know, we, we build our, our whole educational system around the classroom. So, um, but what I did enjoy, I got to, I played basketball on the Cambridge university basketball team. They weren't, you know, they weren't very good at basketball, so I could play on their team and, uh, that was a great experience, and and actually, um, this is something I'm, I'm happy to talk about, and it's getting a little bit into my professional life. But you know, people talk about connections you make and all that at schools. Uh, I've started a uh, bourbon brand with with my friends from Cambridge. It's called Never Say Die Bourbon. Uh, if you haven't heard of it yet, yeah. I've actually heard of it from some friends. Oh, you have? I have Somehow to as well. Connect, yeah. Okay, well, well, we're four years in. We're This summer's four years. That's, that's neat. I'm yeah, glad to hear that. Yeah, word of mouth spread throughout some community. I don't know where I heard it, but I have heard of it. Okay, can I tell the story? Is that all yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so Never Say Die in 1954 won the English Derby, okay? He was the first American bred horse to win the English Derby. Okay, now I'm going to give you two guys, I'm going to test your acumen here. Where do you think that horse was born? My guess is Kentucky. Correct. Lexington. Now, we're in Lexington. Hamburg. There we go. <laughs> we got it. It was born on our farm here in Hamburg. Okay, it was on a piece of the property that was being leased to us by John Bell. I don't know if you know John Bell, but John Bell was a great man, absolutely great man. He also went to the Hill School, um, and uh, his relatives are still here. Uh, great family. They were leasing his start was he leased part of Hamburg place. He ended up then after Hamburg, he started Jonah Bell farm, which then he, he sold to uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and one of his sons now is president of that division. Uh, great family. So anyway, he was leasing this part of Hamburg from us. And he came in from a party one night and they said, uh, you know, Mr. Bell, we've got a foal that's born and, and we're concerned about him. He won't get up. He's having trouble breathing. We're not sure he's going to make it through the night. And Mr. Bell went by the tack room, saw a bottle of bourbon, grabbed it, poured a great big shot. And back in those days, 
That's they did that. That was one one remedy. They took the shot of bourbon, he shoved it down the horse's throat. It shocks the system of the horse. Okay, and believe it or not, and this is all in a book. You can read it called Never Say Die, written written by one of uh, John Bell's uh, grandsons. Uh, um, and the horse jumped up, and he was fine. Okay, so the the owners of the horse decided, uh, um, hey, you know, this horse survived a traumatic event. We're going to name it Never Say Die. Okay, so now let's fast forward to 1954 in the English Derby. Never Say Die is 31 to one. The Queen of England is there. Lester Piggott, who becomes the probably the the best jockey in in the history of England, is he's an apprentice. This is his first, uh, I'm not sure if it's his first derby mount. I think it is, but it's certainly his first derby winner ever. And he wins, I don't know how many later. But, um, and there's a woman in Liverpool named Mona Best, and she sees this horse called Never Say Die. And she says, you know what? I'm never going to give up hope. Okay, that's my, my, I have a son that wants to start a band. We don't have the money to do it. But I love this name. I know this horse is going to win. She literally hawks her jewelry at the pawn shop, buys, borrows all the money she can, bets it all to win on the horse. The horse wins. She comes home. She says, Peter Best, call your, your friends Paul McCarthy and John Lennon, and now we can you can start your band. So that's basically how the Beatles got started. Wow. And Paul McCarthy is quoted as saying, without Never Say Die, there would be no Beatles. Okay? So we're, we're following that same theme. We partnered with Wilderness Trail Distilleries, which is a... Well, when we partnered with them, they weren't that big. They've become very big because their brand is so popular now. Wilderness Trail is one of the best bourbons you'll find. <coughs> it's two guys named uh, Pat and Shane, who uh, Pat Heiss, and they they used to have a company called Fermentation Solutions, where they would, and they still do, where they advise uh, Brown Foreman and and other people when they had trouble with their you know, fermentation, uh, and they finally said, well, why don't we do this? Because we're advising all these people. So they started at Wilderness Trail. They're our partners in this brand. And our our theory is, and this is where we may be fools or geniuses, the rules are you can, you can, um, you have to, for, for it to be called bourbon, okay, you know, it, it has to have corn and it has to be uh, distilled and, and stored in barrels in the United States for at least one year. Two years, you can call it Kentucky straight bourbon. So we're putting all our, our barrels here are, are still here right now. We're going to age them a minimum of two years in Kentucky. So now we can call them Kentucky bourbon. We're going to ship the barrels over to England, just like the horse got shipped to England. Then we're going to, we're going to finish them off in England and then we're going to uh, bottle them and, and we're going to release this exclusively in England and call it England's first Kentucky bourbon. The same, you know, name in honor of the horse, never say die. So it's called never say die. Bourbon. Wow. So anyway, that that all came through my, they came, I had them over for the derby. And in the back of the bus when we were coming home, me and my Cambridge pals uh, came up with this idea. The so, Beatles. Yeah, from started the Beatles. So so that's that's one project. That's one thing came from my education, I guess. Uh the most fun I had was was in law school. I loved law school. That's where I met my wife, uh, you know, and being back in Kentucky after basically I'd been away for eight years. Um, so uh, University of Kentucky is a fine institution, great place to get, get a law degree. And uh, I enjoyed practicing law. 
Uh, but the um, I, I didn't enjoy uh, making money by billing my time. That's the one downside with the practice of law. Now, of course, you can become a pretty much a contingency fee lawyer, which that was sort of, I, I wasn't going to take my whole life and bill for my time. That just, uh, after five years of doing it, I realized I didn't, that puts a cap on what you can make too, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of mine, Paul Orfala, when I was working hard and practicing, he said, Pat, how many hours a week can you work? I said, oh, I can, I can work, you know, I can work 80 hours a week. He said, no, really, how many hours? Really, every, the whole year. He, I said, I don't know, Paul. I said, I guess I can average 50, 60 hours a week the whole year. He goes, your money or your investments can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And really, that kind of dawned on me at that point. I didn't want to just bill for my time. Uh, so that that was kind of a pivotal moment for me when I decided not to do law. And at that time, in the early 90s, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to get into real estate. But the law was a good avenue for me to learn. I did real estate deals. I was around real estate deals, and and that was a good a good way for me to 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 learn. And of course, to have the opportunity of a family farm to to develop is something that anybody in North America would die for. So yeah. it, it all kind of worked out, luckily for me. Yeah, and you said you said when you were in Chicago, a deal brought you back. Well, okay, right, yeah. Actually, the first deal we did was uh, Myers. Now. I say that we actually, and um, when I was in law school, we had uh, a, a contract to do where Hamburg Pavilion is now. We had a con. You guys are probably too young to remember any of this, right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was. Yeah. This was. You were born when? Ninety-five. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This was before you were born. So uh, this was all in the papers and all this. Actually, this is kind of interesting. So we, we actually uh, had a deal with a company called, well, Henry Faison, rest in peace, he passed away a few years ago, but he had a company called Faison Development, and we'd done a, we were doing a joint venture where we were going to do an enclosed mall at the site of the Hamburg Pavilion. And actually, as it turned out, it was kind of, it was, it was frustrating to me at the time, but at the same time, because uh, that was right when, I would say malls were at their peak, and literally... While we had this deal under contract, you could see what I call the demodeling of America was starting. Okay. What year was this again? I think we, this was like 86, 87, 1986, 1987. And we did this, we had a contract to do a joint venture to create an enclosed mall out here. And we had um, pennies and Parisians. And then UK came along, and that you know it's all based on your anchors. That's how malls were built. You, you know, you yeah, you, just, you had your staple stores in there, and the yeah, ones everybody recognized. Once you got your anchors, you know, you needed really. I mean, there were some malls built with two anchors, which in hindsight wasn't enough. You really needed four anchors, okay. Uh, and once you got your anchors, you could lease the rest of it. Okay, I mean, I learned this when in law school when we were doing this. Um, so we we had LOIs with pennies and, and Parisians. Then UK was starting uh Coldstream. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's funny, this was I guess my first encounter where where you're trying to do a uh when you have a competitive development with you, uh which actually ends up not being good. Um because a lot of times what happens in is, is my saying is the tenant wins. I mean, when they can play you off somebody else, 
you know, hey, they're going to win. I mean, that's just what happens. So either you, you do an uneconomically advantageous deal to get your deal done, or you don't, or the deal fails. And I, I'll go through, I've had a couple of, of these in uh, situations, uh, not, well, I had one in Lexington I'll talk about on the south side of Lexington, but not nothing major like this. But anyway, UK got Sears. They signed a deal, I think it was with Glimpshire. I, I, I kind of tried to Google it last night, and I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I guess it's too late, too far back. <laughs> but uh, I think the developer was Glimpshire, which is, you know, it's a, a REIT. And they had Sears as their as their anchor, and and we both were going in for permits, and it it, it really kind of hurt me that I was competing, and this was a a, a, a kind of thing that stuck with me, kind of bothered me because I love the University of Kentucky, and I didn't think it was right that I should have to compete with the University of Kentucky. Uh, the idea of Coldstream originally, and now I think they've gotten back to that a little bit. Uh, the idea was. Hey, we're going to create a research park. Uh, that was if you now, if you will go back and look for years ago. That's that's what the whole idea of UK was. Is that it was going to be like Triangle, uh, you know, in, in Raleigh, Durham, and they wanted to create a research and connect it with the University of Kentucky, bring uh, uh, young entrepreneurs like you, like you talk about technology. Well, of course, we didn't really use the technology term as much then, but the idea was startup companies. You have a research park. They can they can uh, utilize the the wealth of talent you have at the University of Kentucky, and this would be a great thing for Lexington, right? And which, hundred percent, I'm Sounds on board like with it, that. Hundred percent, that's great. Well, the first thing I'm I know about is that I'm they want to build a mall. When I'm trying to build one, you know, it didn't sit real well with me back then, uh, to be honest. Um, and not only did they want to compete and build a mall, they also went in. For an interchange, you know, where where uh, sixty four and seventy five come together, there on Georgetown Street. The Georgetown Street has an overpass. Well, they said, well, well, feds and state, we want you all to build an interchange here for us, and then we can build them all. Well, the interchange <clears throat> the interchange was going to cost like an absurd amount back then, <clears throat> like twenty million bucks or something. <clears throat> you know, twenty million bucks in nineteen eighty six dollars. Okay, and I'm like. Well, yeah, you give me twenty million dollars, I'll build you a five-story mall. I mean, back in '86. I mean, so anyway, actually, in and in hindsight, it all kind of turned out good because what ended up happening was that the fact that <clears throat> that we couldn't get more than just the two anchors because they tied up Sears, and I think they had another one. I can't remember. So we each kind of had two, but that wasn't really enough. So uh, we went in for permit. We got ours. I can't remember if they got theirs or not. But then, because we couldn't get the other anchors, the deal dragged on. Time kills all deals. Let's just, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So so then we kind of, you know, 1990 approaches, and I don't remember, you know, if you remember, 89, 90, big real estate depression. Big time, right? Uh, and, and in addition, that's when, Looking back on the history of it all, that's really when demolition of America started. Power centers started becoming the more prominent development tool. Uh, back, it's taken what now? So that was ninety. So uh, there, here we are, thirty years later, and you're really seeing it, right? You're really seeing oh, yeah. that malls are indoor malls are really struggling. Uh, so, in hindsight, I'm kind of glad we didn't get that done. 
but at the time it was it was uh it was, it was hard on me it, as a young immature law student I couldn't understand why I had to compete with the university where I'm going to law school at yeah. which I loved I grew up big blue uh that's still one of my fondest memories is that uh you know my mom and I went to every UK basketball game uh we had season tickets and of course now I understand being a parent, you know, what a joy that is to have an event you can take your kid with that wants to go, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I remember the 78 team and Jack Gibbons and Rick Roby and uh, it, that was hard on me. I'll just be honest. That was a hard, a hard thing for me to swallow. Now, 30 years later, I, it turns out to be the best, really, uh, that we didn't do that and close them all. Uh, if we had, I wonder what it'd be like. I, it, yeah. I wonder what it would be like. This town, in my opinion, now can't support two enclosed malls. I think Fayette Mall will still be fine. I, I mean, I think... It was packed the other day yeah, when I drove by. I mean, Fayette Mall is a great piece of property. <clears throat> now, the, the summit has hurt it. I imagine so. Yeah. Let's be honest. The summit's really hurt it. Uh, and uh, I sort of hate to see that because I don't, I don't like to see... Uh, any retail struggle in town um, because we're all in this together and when there's vacant places that then whoever ends up with it all of a sudden they're offering five dollars square foot rent you know but then you know the tenant can say well i can get five bucks over yeah, here everybody else has to compete yeah yeah i mean I, I it's i don't like to see it at all um and so i i um i can we kind of got off topic a little bit i guess but that was the first thing we did, okay? And then that was a failure. I mean, let's just admit it. I mean, yeah. we, we, it was a failure in that it didn't get done. It wasn't a failure from our side because we, we basically ended up keeping some non-refundable deposit money. Um, we didn't spend our resources. That was part of the deal I had with our JV partner. He gave us non-refundable money. It was all on him. It fell apart. Um, and then we just kind of sat there because 91, 92, 93 were probably three of the worst commercial development real estate years in the history well certainly in my lifetime you know that was a serious real estate depression then. that was the, the years of the high interest rates correct yeah there was high one percent interest rates or something yeah and and nobody was doing any deals then right nobody so then in 94 we um we got a contract with myers to uh, this is an interesting thing so in 90 it was late 94 i think um you know, forgive me if it was 95, but it was somewhere in there, 94, 95. I think we started in 95. Maybe it didn't get signed until, until I mean, started in 94, didn't get signed in 95. But but uh, they came and they would only buy. They wouldn't lease, okay? And we so we had to sell to them. But we ended up negotiating. I negotiated. This was my first kind of real negotiation was we got them to put in the uh, infrastructure for uh, both, they built both Sir Barton and Pink Pigeon back a ways, you know, and dedicated them as public roads. They did some improvements on Man of War, and they graded that whole site, which included all those outlots up front, where I have Chewy's and Bank of America, you know, all those outlots, and where Rafferty's is and Haverty's. They graded all those, put all the infrastructure in, and and then we had a deal with them that they had to build within two years because 
right at the time we did it, they had bought some land in Cleveland, about three or four sites, and then hadn't built. So, you know, we're trying to start a development. Yeah. We didn't want them to just sit there. So really, right about the deadline, they finally started building. But it, <laughs> they kept us. So then that's really what, when that all started happening, I came back. And then the first lease we did was with Verzoli's, and it just clicked, I think, 20 years. Like, yeah, two years ago. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, I did that deal, ground lease with them, and we clicked 20 years. Now they're crushing it, too. I've seen that their sales for this past year. Oh, are they doing well? Yeah. Absolutely crushing it. Well, good. It's, I mean, that, like, it's all full circle. It's Lexington. Lexington Company started by Kunitota. Well, I mean, or actually kind of, he had this, the chain. That's when we did the deal. This was the 300 store at the time. There was a little, when it opened, we were the 300 store. Wow. And I had a picture of my dad getting a fettuccine dish, which is <laughs> kind of funny in the yeah. paper. But, uh, and, and I still remember this was funny. We, we uh, you know, that store opened. That was really the first store to open out here before anything. Okay. Now, Target was going up. You know, Myers was going up. But Frizzoli's was open. Okay, and and it snowed, and now those roads are private street, and we we share at Ali Sheba. There's it's actually owned by Myers, but we have access easements and all this, and they're supposed to maintain it. Well, hell, they weren't open, and it snowed, and me and my dad came in the office early, and I was like, Dad, this this uh, we we got this problem here. I said, Ali Sheba's got five feet of steel, three feet of snow on it. And uh, they're open for business. They're looking at us. And he goes, let me let me see what I can do. He drove out there. He saw some guy with a snow plow or something and said, hey, come over here. He said, I'll give you 100 bucks. Will you go plow Ali Sheba? <laughs> he said, give me the 100 He goes, and you can send us a bill. He said, okay. He and that's, that was funny, though. That was our first yeah. that was our first experience of property management, I guess. So. Yeah. Huh. And when you first started developing you know, Hamburg, what – what did you have in mind? Did you is what it is today kind of how you envisioned yeah, it then? How has it changed? Believe, yeah, believe it or not, it was very, very similar. My vision, of course, I can remember back in the late nineties. I'd meet with tenants and and I'd meet with other developers too, and and I'd describe what we're going to do here. And uh, one attribute I have uh, strong is I'm able to read people really well. Um, that comes from playing poker since I was five years old. I am pretty good at body language, pe- reading people. And I can tell you 90% of the people I met with, they'd leave here and say, that guy's crazy. He's never going to do anything. You know, that's, there's no way he's going to get that done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, uh, but yes, this is sort of what we'd envisioned. I mean, we had a lot of plans. I mean, my family I met with, it's not just me. Let's make that clear. I'm the out front person, but there's, um, I have two cousins. Uh, the fam, the farm was originally when I was growing up was owned by my dad and his brother, and that's who I'm named after, uh, Uncle Pat, hmm. Pat Madden. Um, and he has two daughters, two cousins who are still involved with me in the farm. Um, and we, you know, we had a lot of planning meetings, and I mean, it was hard to figure out what to do. And the main, the main, the main hurdle was the the, the massive infrastructure cost to start a development like this. And a lot of people don't realize, but, you know, all these roads are here. Uh, Sir Barton, okay, Polo Club. Uh, now, I might have gotten, like I did with Myers, where I got Myers to build those two roads coming in. But, I mean, that was money I could have gotten otherwise. But all these roads were built with private money, okay? Mainly our, mainly Madden money. Uh, and all the sewers, all the storm, 
And it's all still maintained by private money? Or? No, 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 no. You build them and then you, you turn them over. You build them to the city specs. That's what people don't realize. Yeah, when you, you build them to city specs, then you turn, turn it over to the city. And then there you have a, a year, one-year uh, warranty on them, okay? And then after that, it's the cities uh, to maintain. Gotcha. Uh, but we did this before there was TIF. Um, you know, I got no assistance whatsoever um, from anything. Not that I'm crying. I'm very happy with everything. But, but most people don't understand, yeah, we built all this infrastructure out here. Well. And named a lot of it, right? Named pretty much all of it. Yeah, that now that is one privilege you get. You do get to name. It. Yeah, <laughs> you do get to name it. But they 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 won't let you. I've learned some rules on that. You can't name it after a person. Really? Yeah. Huh. Unless unless it's a famous person. Okay. And then, but a lot of these were named after horses. horses that's that correct? was yeah. My mom did most of that. Yeah, she okay. was picking the names and and our two best. I mean, this shopping center up here that has War Admiral and Lowe's and Sportsman's Warehouse. That's called War Admiral Place. And then the shopping center back here with Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, Bed Bye Bye Baby, that's called Sir Barton. And uh, the thing a lot of people don't know is that War Admiral, who everybody's heard of, he stood his last uh, two or three years at Stud at Hamburg Place. The guy that you've seen in that movie, and his name escapes me, but if you've seen Seabiscuit or read the book, you know, the guy who owned War Admiral, they portrayed as kind of a bad guy in the movie. Mm-hmm. My dad said he really wasn't that bad a guy. Um, I, his name is escaping me. It's killing me. I'll probably think of it by the end. I guess you got to have a bad guy in the movie. Yeah, you got to have a bad guy. But you remember how they portrayed him as kind of oh, yeah. against the upstart guy that owned yeah. that owned Seabiscuit? Uh, he owned War Admiral, and they were trying to get the match race and all that. Well, War Admiral had a match race with Sir Barton. Sir Barton was the first Triple Crown winner, and he was uh, bred and raised here on Hamburg by my, my great-grandfather, Johnny Madden. And he was, and they had a match race, Sir Barton and War Admiral. And War Admiral won. But, uh, but anyway, so so War Admiral stood his last. Uh, he died. The guy, I can't think of his name, is killing me. But he he passed away. And then my dad flew up to Philadelphia and negotiated with the estate lawyers to get, he had another stallion called War Relic. He got both those stallions here at Hamburg, War Admiral and War Relic, for his last, uh, their last three or four years they were around. So uh, we like doing that, though. We like naming them after the horses. So when you were you know, figuring out the development uh, strategy of Hamburg, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing, I imagine, where you have, you know, retail, you have commercial office space, but then you also have, you know, residential. How do you time whether when you do residential and when you do the commercial? Is that do you do them at the same time? Talk about that strategy. Yeah, that was okay. That's there was a lot that went into that, and actually, when we started, um, we started Hamburg. The the issue we had was the amount of rooftops around. So it is exactly what you said. It was a chicken and egg kind of thing. I, uh, obviously, now the rooftops have come. I mean, they've come out here and Blue Eagles, which I love seeing go up. I mean, those were all you know that was what we needed. Andover was still was just really just going. Yeah. when we started this development. Blue Eagles wasn't here. I mean, it it came later when we first started it. Uh, what our philosophy, I kind of actually the philosophy I had was that we we wanted to keep the I wanted to become a, a retail developer, and we, you know as a family that's what we would focus on would, would, was to get the retail and own the retail, keep the retail, 
And then we, the first two subdivisions were West Wind and Shetlands. And we took a partner, we stayed in and developed those with another partner just because I was focusing on the retail part. Now I, I'd have confidence to do, the, do them myself, but we've had a philosophy of, of keeping more of the commercial. Um, so I, I didn't mind partnering or selling off segments for somebody else to develop the residential. Uh, but I guess the answer to your question is you, you had a plan. We, 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 we were doing the Shetlands and West Wind, and then the, the, the retail came really as the market demanded. I, I got it all approved. We do this stuff, and then I just sit and wait and, and get retailers in here. Then we go with it. Yeah. Okay. So makes we, sense. Yeah. We, and we tried not to, uh, on, the, on the residential aspect of it, I never tried to put uh, too many um, uh, residential uses that would be in direct conflict with each other. Okay. So, like, if you go out here to Presswick and, you know, the townhomes are on the other side of Starshoot, those were going at the same time. But to me, they were different different people. Mm-hmm. You know, Presswick was a fourplex, yeah. and then you were buying the, the, the uh, townhome unit across the way. And so that was always my philosophy was I would try it. We would, we would release the, the, the residential but try not to create a conflict in price points or use. Okay. Now, and as a de- developer, was that just kind of a feel thing or, or how, how did you kind of go about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I feel is a good word. I mean, uh, obviously from being here, we knew everybody. So I would, I would educate myself by talking to builders and talking to people. Uh, and, and then when I did a deal, uh, like Rob Bolton with Presswick, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd show him a map. I'd say, here's what we're doing here. Here's what we're doing here. What do you think? Is that a problem? No, that should be fine. Yeah, no, we won't compete with that. You know, so I think we accomplished that, really. I, um, and it's funny how uh, the spigot turns on and off on this residential stuff. Right now, the spigot's on. It's flowing. But I can remember 2008 when literally the spigot was just shut off totally. I mean, nothing, zero. Somebody broke the spigot off. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, it was almost like overnight, too. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, actually, I'll give Tim Haymaker credit, um, but, um, you know, that's what he, he's focused on that and done a good job with the residential. And so um, I can remember going to his, he did a presentation, I think it was at CPAL in the summer of 2008, and I tell, I brag on him. I say, you know, you're the only one that I knew that really predicted. He put up there the statistics on building permits and and what was going on. And he says, look, you know, I don't know what's going on, but we, this thing's gotten really slowed down. And it wasn't four months later when it wasn't just slowed down; it was shut off. You know, and that's the thing with uh, people always ask me too, like, how's the retail done? You know, I've had a philosophy out here, not to just do a deal just to do a deal. Now. I'll have projects outside of Hamburg where I've fallen victim to where, hey, I need this. I'm going to go on and do it, even though I know this tenant's kind of risky. Uh, but not here at Hamburg. I, I've I've only really done deals with tenants that I think are very stable, uh, bring something unique to the table, don't destroy, category kill another tenant here, uh, and and it's it's actually we've been so lucky. Knock on wood. Through all this, um, through all this, through all this, uh, you know, 
the recent stuff, we've had very, very, very little um, problems with our retail tenants here. Yeah. Hmm. Let's uh, let's jump to like the future of Lexington. What's let's start with the future of Hamburg real quick. Is there anything left to be done here? Or is, oh yeah, everything. I have a few parcels here on this side of the interstate. The, the interstate divides the farm. Yeah. Uh, we have some parcels over here, mainly office uh, P one zones parcels. Okay. Uh, and then plus uh, from the section I sold uh, to Haymaker Gatton, I mean, how many years ago it's been now? 14 years ago or something. They're still developing some of that. Uh, then on the other, so we flip over the interstate. Uh, as you know, Baptist is finally rocking and rolling. If you're here at 3 o'clock, you'll feel the building shake from a blast. They do pretty much every day at 3 o'clock. Uh, and, and then I'm kind of waiting um, for... My other parcels over there for two things to happen. One, the, the, the Baptist to get open. And then, as as you probably know, we sold some land to the middle school. They're going to build a new middle, middle school and elementary school kind of across the street from Baptist. <clears throat> two things that are really great for this end of town. Really yeah. significant things. And, and we still have, I still have the land next to Cabela's. Uh, the next things that will develop over there are the land next to Cabela's and then the land behind uh, Watercrest and the new uh, Prest, uh, Prest, uh, Preston Greens. There's some land. Those will be the next uh, things that will be developed over there. Now, as far as the – now let's jump back to Lexington as a whole. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion on urban services boundaries and how that plays a role in Lexington's future and thoughts on that now. Uh, I like the urban service area concept. But I think we've been a little too restrictive. I think, I think we need to. Um, I think we're ready to expand it. Um, what What makes you think it's ready? Like what What are you seeing that? Well, there's this. I talked to these residential. One, the residential builders all tell me that they're dying for lots right now. Mm-hmm. Going back to that spigot thing, now it's wide open. There's just not a lot of places to get lots. Yeah. There's and there's more demand. And then uh, number two. I mean, I'm out of uh, like if if you had a, if you wanted 50 acres for a a, a a major employer in town, I don't have it. Okay, and uh, that's that's my biggest concern for Lexington is is uh, attracting new uh, businesses uh, that employ employ people. I'm concerned that we're losing our talent. That when a person graduates from the Gatton Business School here, that where are they going to go to work? I mean, there's not a lot of large companies that are hiring people. So I'm worried about that. I wish we could uh, um, get more, attract more corporations. And to do that, I think we need to open up some more land to do that. And and our land prices are residential. Since we don't have a lot of um, lots available right now, that makes the ones that are very expensive, which then makes it hard to build a affordable house. You know, when the lot's that expensive, uh, so I mean, it's nothing you haven't heard before, I'm sure. But and and, and it's pretty logical where the boundary needs to go. Um, and, and we didn't talk about that a little bit. I told you about competing developments. So so uh, this is kind of a funny story. So so um, the south side of Lexington, Nicholasville Road. You know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but, you know, we are built up to the border on the south. There is no 
you, you can, there's no expansion. We're finished, kaput. Okay. Yeah. We're done. You can't, Jessamine County's next door. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no more building. And, uh, so I had another one of those. It was it wasn't as bad. You, I talked about the cold steam, cold stream, um, Amber Mall situation. Well, I, I developed a commerce center out Nicholasville Road when, with Cole's Department Store, who I ended up uh, basically being the kind of their preferred developer in Kentucky. Here, I did about six deals across the state for them. And the way I got my foot in the door was they told me uh, they did the deal out here at Hamburg. And they said, look we really don't want to open one store. We got to have a second store. Okay. And they said, we want to be on Nicholasville road, but we can't get in there. And, uh, I got to give Mike Dinger. I don't know if you know him, but he, uh, Dinger's hearth, hearth and home. But he, he kept coming to me and says, Pat, look, I, we can do this, this property here. I own it with, with a partner and we can, you know, if you can get a tenant in here, we can get this zoned. We can do it. And I, at first I was like, Mike, I don't, I don't want to hear about it. And then, <laughs> Finally, I said, you know what? I do have a tenant. And I told Coles about it. And it was really kind of a weird building of Coles out there with nothing around it. Yeah. You know? But they were so desperate. They wanted into this market. And they couldn't get in. They couldn't get in on any kind of economic feasibility. And actually, they had... This is... Well, what had happened was uh, another developer in town had them on a site. It was it was actually uh, near Boston Road. I, my memory's kind of gone off on this a little bit, but... Somehow that developer got them to give them two hundred and fifty thousand, and then he ended up not producing the site. Wow! So they they were pretty a down on Lexington, down on developers here. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, look, guys, I can get this deal for you, and I said it's reason, you know, I can do it. I'll need this number. They said, well, we can pay that, and I said, look, you're gonna, you know, I'm not guaranteeing anything other than I'm getting you up and running, and uh, they said, you know what? Because we've already got, we need another store so bad, that's fine. Well, so then I had to deal with Coles, and then uh, Kroger uh, was in the market. And um, I tried to put them next to Coles out there. And as you know, uh, they ended up going, and, and this was where I competed with somebody, they ended up going to uh, Brandon Crossing, right? Uh, which, again, kind of pissed me off, but at least it was a fair fight. At least it was fair. I wasn't competing with the university. Yeah. Uh, and that development, it's 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 kind of getting its legs under it now, Brandon Crossing. But you know, the original developer it didn't work out for him or whatever. But but um, so I had a competition there, and and uh, the only reason I could get calls there and we had to go that far in was because Fayette County's cut off there. You know, the south side. Uh, so then, as you know, eventually I got Sam's there, and it all worked out. That was a great development for me, uh, getting Coles and Sam's and did that, lots in front, all that. But the south side of Lexington is developed out. So if you look at a map, you look at where we have sewers, really this corridor out Winchester Road is the next the next corridor for development. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and uh, I think that'll that'll help A. Hamburg even more. Uh, I think we can do some nice things out there, and I think that's the next the next uh, property to be to come in. What if, if you were to look at it, and that's based on sewer capability, road network, pretty much every metric you look at. That's really the schools. That's the that's the place. Yeah. What would you like to see out there? Like you mentioned, the one 
uh, one out man of war. Was it Costco? The land by that. What would you like to get out oh, there? Oh, out by Costco. And, and uh, well, I'm working on a, a couple deals on that. Uh, part of it will be uh, multifamily. And um, part of it, I can't tell you what the other part is. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But uh, there'll be some multifamily for sure. Uh, that and and it'll be higher density residential will go uh, between on between Costco, on Costco and Cabela's, along with another use potentially, and then the area behind um, uh, uh, Pre- uh, Pre- Preston um, and, and our Waterstone yeah. and the assisted living place will be high density residential. Too. Okay, those will be the next things out there. Gotcha. Let's um, let's transition real quick to end to end this for some advice to anybody listening that might want to get into real estate or development or of any kind. Throughout your career, what were some of the biggest things you've taken away that you know you want to pass on to the younger generation as far as lessons? Well, the the main thing to me on real estate is is uh, your reputation and your connections and same and your credibility. Okay, so. Uh, by having a good reputation, knowing that you do what you say you're going to do, knowing you pay your debts, knowing that, that when you say, hey, you know, I got a relationship with Coles, for instance, uh, knowing that, that um, your word is, it, you know, people know that you're not just telling them a, a lie, that, that that will get you a lot of things, okay? And we'll go back to that deal with, with Mike Denter. He, 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 because I had credibility, because he knew I was telling him the truth, he didn't make me, <clears throat> um, didn't make my money at risk on the contract, okay? So if you can get time to put together a deal, okay, from a, somebody who's got a piece of property, if they'll give you time, and that's what I tell a lot of people whenever I go do a deal in Louisville or Columbus, uh, you know, I say, look, if you'll give, here, here's what I'm going to do. i just be upfront about it. I say, I need X, Y, and Z before I do it. I'll pay you your price if you give me give me time, okay? I, I'm not one of these people, and, and the way people get in trouble is that you go buy a piece of property without a plan, without at least something pre-done, okay? Uh, that, to me, is, is how you really make it in this business. And it's taken me a long time to get a reputation built up, a, a list of people who call me when they think of something, they've got something, tenants that may call me, uh, um, and of course, I've been blessed. I was lucky uh, to have this opportunity given to me, and I can't thank my family enough for letting me do this and learn everything I've learned doing this. I've just been very lucky, and very fortunate, and I'll never forget that. Not, and I won't get some big ego that I, I bootstrapped my way up. But I would like to think I've not screwed it up, and, and I've created a good name for myself and a good name for my family. And I, I'd like to think that. We've created something here at Hamburg that the community is proud of and that, you know, people that live here do love it. Um, and and we, it's something the city can be proud of. And that was something that was important to my family and me is that we did create something that, that, that's great for the community. Mm-hmm.